all of North America's experience points to the fact that these are animals that can live with and around people with just a little bit of consideration on our part. You know, we put in one of these flow devices and there's basically nowhere that beavers can't theoretically live. You know, we can have these creatures everywhere as long as we exercise a little bit of tolerance and forbearance and, and uh, political will. Hello and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode, we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today, we're chatting to the award-winning environment writer and author of the book Eager, The Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, Ben Goldfarb. Well, hello and welcome to series three, yes, three of the Lodgecast. Wow. Yes, we are back. Hello to both our new listeners and those of you who joined us last year enjoying series one and two. It's flown by and back by popular demand, of course. And I'm very pleased to say that things are happening slightly differently here this time. So new year, new format, same podcast. (laughs) Now, we previously released our episodes monthly so that you had a tasty morsel from us and our brilliant guests every few weeks. But this time we're going to share the series weekly. Yes, so every Tuesday for the next six weeks, you can pop us in your ears and tune in to a new conversation about beavers, about nature restoration, and about generally dealing with climate adaptation. Yes, all those small topics. (laughs) (laughs) And as a real treat, we're running a competition this series too. Drumroll, please. Now, friend of the Beaver Trust and reintroduction expert, you may have heard of him actually, he's called Derek Gow, and he's written this brilliant book called Bringing Back the Beaver. Now, it's been out for a year or so, but it's still such a fantastic read, and we've actually got a few copies to give away to some lucky Lodgecast listeners. All you have to do to get a copy for yourself is to shout about this podcast. You can tag us in a post or story on Instagram or Twitter at Beaver Trust using the hashtag TheLodgeCast. Or do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And so that we know it was you, why don't you email us a screen grab of your review and email it over to info at Beavertrust so that we can say thank you very much. Well, now we've got that bit of housekeeping out of the way, Eva. Talk to me. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, thank you. Really pleased to be back. Um, extremely busy. Can't believe I'm this busy in the second week of January at the point of recording. <laughs> Flat out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nicely not rested from Christmas, which was chaotic. But really pleased it's time to dust off the microphone and dig into some fantastic topics with some amazing guests this series. Mm. But this this year for me, I think, is all about climate. It's just such a critical year of action. And I'm just wondering how we can all just pull together and and not forget that COP26 was a few weeks ago and it's all been forgotten. We need to keep keep plugging away, keep Mm. doing more, keep pulling together. Um, yeah, feel, feels really important this year. How about you? What are you looking forward to this year? Um, well, this year is similarly, I guess, climate motivated. Um, I'm slightly terrified to realise that my book comes out in nearly exactly six months time. 
and exciting um, (laughs) so I'm sort of trying to gear up for that trying to prepare myself um for for what that might involve and I've just moved house so I'm talking to you from a slight um fort of boxes and navigating my way around cupboards I've no idea what (laughs) is in them but no it's all really good and I think similarly to you it's kind of how can we keep the momentum that was generated last year around the environment and the conversation around that um and Eva actually while I remember I must ask you something very important it may be the most important thing I talk to you about so (laughs) leading up to Christmas you may have noticed that Eva Bishop at Eva Bishop on Twitter was suddenly doing something called a beaver advent cal short for calendar (laughs) And every day she'd post a photo that was slightly beaver related with an amazing fact. And it kind of became a bit of a hit, kind of spiraled out of control on some days. The beaver cow. Please tell me yeah. more. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was just a silly idea, really, that I came up with the, with the kids one morning, or on the first, actually. We were in bed on the first. Right. And they were very <laughs> excited about their um, little felt calendar. And I was like, yeah, anyway. And I thought, oh, we could do a little beaver fact every day. So I started doing one and it got, yeah, it got huge traction. Yeah. Um, I have to, uh, <laughs> gonna bigger and better this for year. 2022. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> there were, there was some collaboration and input from um, beaver experts around the world, actually. Yeah. That. It was good fun. It's pretty amazing. And what, so what else is going on in, in beaver land so far as we record in the new year? Well, last week we had a great photo through from Chris Jones down at the Cornwall Beaver Project where they're laying the foundations for disabled access down to the beaver site, Yeah, um, which is really exciting, actually, because, you know, nature should be accessible for all. Mm. And it's, well, as we'll get on to um, later in this series, you know, na- the, the the benefits of being in nature and beaver wetlands are cannot be understated. Mm. So it's fantastic that Chris is doing so much down there to... Yeah. Make sure everyone can go and see the beaver site. Quite literally paving the way to bring beavers Quite to more people. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also um, coming up this year, so early 2022, a couple of really high profile beaver releases in the diary. We don't know when they're happening yet, but we will keep you posted. Perhaps follow us on social media at Beaver Trust to um, keep abreast of when the beavers get released from their from their boxes into their new environment. Yeah. It's always a it, was a it was a huge, huge year last year with some high-profile releases, and it's not going to be any different this year, if not if not more happening. Mm, so mm. lots to lots to look out for. Beavers coming to a river near you. Yeah, yeah, love it. No, very, very exciting. Great, and we're thrilled to kickstart Series 3 of the LodgeCast with fellow beaver nut, award-winning environmental journalist and author of the fantastic book Eager, The Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, Ben Goldfarb. Ben, welcome all the way from the West Thank Coast of the States. Welcome to the LodgeCast. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm honoured to be to be joining you. It's it's really exciting for us because you're a bit of a trailblazer for the beaver love. So um, it's quite a big moment for, for Beaver Trust and the LodgeCast. Yeah, we're playing it cool. <laughs> oh, well, I... I am, I'm honored to be speaking with you. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I feel like there's so much incredible momentum uh, in the in the beaver world in uh, across across the global pond. And uh, I just have so much admiration for the work you guys are, are doing in the UK. So thanks for having me. Oh, so, well, first of all, Ben, this is a very important moment to start our interview. We need you to judge the first beaver fact off of season three. So essentially, Eva and I will both share with you our favorite beaver fact of the week. And you get to decide which fact you think is better or more interesting or which one you just completely prefer. It's totally up to you. We won't judge you or we might. 
I'm going to kick off. So, I mean, how to find a fact that Mr. Eager Beaver doesn't already know? Sigh. But I'll give it a go. So, in late 18th century, beaver felt hats were a genuine staple of British economy, British fashion. They were a symbol of so many things, employing master hatters, people in the fashion industry, tradesmen, the military. The UK exported 21 million beaver felt hats in 70 years, over a 70-year period. And beaver pelts are rumoured, or there's evidence to show that they were the first real American commodity. And so my fact is kind of more of a thought bubble, I guess. Where would these superpowers, so the UK and the US, be without beavers? Yeah, you know, we've we've sent so much junk to you over the years. Um, <laughs> you know, beaver, beaver felt hats were probably as as devastating as they were ecologically. Probably one of the the better made commodities that uh, Americans have shipped overseas. So that's that's a a very solid fact. Thank and, you uh, so much. You've, you've set you've set a high a high bar for Eva to to conquer. Okay, so my fact um, comes with a little bit of assistance from another friend in, in the states. I confess. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Fairfax. Um, Many of the beaver dams that Henry Morgan mapped out and included in his 1868 book, The American Beaver and His Works, are still in the same place today. So those those dams are at least 150 years old, which is so cool. Ancient dams. It's incredibly cool. And just, yeah, so ancient. I mean, you know, and I think that 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 map is fascinating to me because here, you know, here in in the Western US where I live, you know, we have... Our streams tend to be a little bit steeper. They're flashier. We get these big pulses of snow melt. Mm. So our dams tended not to be very long lived here. So to see evidence of, of dams that go back centuries is really mind blowing. And I think it sort of speaks to the you know the hydrologic diversity of, of North America a little bit. You know the beaver dams are sort of perform- performing or functioning in very different ways in different places in North America. Nice. So I I love I love those I love those Morgan maps too. Fascinating. Uh, amazing. That's stuff. cool. So so what do you what's it going to be? The maps or the pelts? <laughs> yeah. So now you've got to choose. Now I, now I have to judge. Well, I, I have to admit that I did not know the 21 million pelt figure that, mm-hmm. uh, that oh, Sophie, Sophie that's that a win was... in itself. You've presented a new fact of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Nice. That, I, I hadn't heard a, a numeric figure like that before. So I'm going to, with, with apologies <laughs> to Eva and Morgan, I will, I'll give it to Sophie's oh, possibly made up fact. Ben, that's well, well earned. That means a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good Googling skills. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into to the meat of the interview then. Now, Ben, on this podcast, we've spoken to so many different people from farmers to fishery scientists, rewilding experts, writers, broadcasters, even doctors. And we've had conversations around all things nature restoration going well beyond the beaver as an animal. But we're so pleased that you found time to chat to us because you're an environmental journalist and author, but also a major global authority on beavers as an animal. And in particular, you have a really deep understanding of North American beavers, while we, of course, have the Eurasian beaver in Britain. What got you into this field? Did you ever plan on dedicating so much of your career to understanding these animals? Yeah, it's a, a great question. I guess I'll just briefly push back against the global authority thing. I think that's kind of the one of the nice things about being a journalist, you know, is that you're never actually the authority yourself, but you have 
access to the authorities, you know, so I, I yeah, I, I sort of humbly stand on the shoulders of many, many beaver giants uh, whom I've, I've, <laughs> I've learned from over the years. Um, you know, for me, I, I, <laughs> I grew up in uh, in New York and, uh, you know, my, my parents frequently took me to uh, the Catskills and the Adirondacks, which are sort of areas of upstate New York that are really pretty wild. Nice. You know, I think that yeah. a lot of people hear, the, hear the, the phrase New York and they think of New York City, you know, but the, the state is actually enormous. Um, and it's it's very rural and and uh, kind of agrarian and a, a lot of it. Um, and upstate New York, you know, is is really uh, you know one of the wilder places um, in the in the United States, and you know, and certainly one of the most beavery places. Uh, so you know, I, I have memories of you know of being a little kid, you know, canoeing on Adirondack lakes at night with my parents and hearing tail slaps. You know, I think those, are, those are my, my yeah, those are my first my first beaver memories. And you know, I, I so I grew up amazing. you know hiking and. It was incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up hiking and camping and fishing. So I was always, you know, around these animals. You know, I think that's the one thing that um, is really amazing about the United States is just how abundant beavers are. I mean, of course, they're, you know, not yeah. as abundant mm. as they once were. But, you know, it's not like the UK where you can only see them, uh, you know, on a handful of yeah. reintroduction sites. You know, they're they're all over the place here, which is fantastic. Um, so, you know, I was, just, I was just around these animals frequently, always, always enjoyed seeing them. Um, and then a, a number of years ago, you know, I was, I was living in Seattle, working as an environmental journalist, you know, looking for things to cover, to write about. And somebody sent me a, a flyer for a, a beaver workshop uh, that was that was happening outside of Seattle. And, I, you know, I had no idea what a beaver workshop was or what that entailed. But, I, you know, I knew that I had to be there. Uh, it sounded like a story. So I went to this workshop and it was just, you know, one scientist after another getting up and saying their piece about how valuable and significant these animals are you know there were fisheries biologists and you know and and hydrologists and geomorphologists you know talking about beavers and water storage and climate change and drought and wildfire and salmon and uh, you know I just sort of realized that hey this this animal that I had kind of grown up around and had almost taken for granted as this you know ubiquitous part of the landscape was actually you know one of the most important architects of North American ecosystems. And there was just a, a huge story there. So that was really, mm. you know, it was a combination of that childhood experience being with these animals and then going to that workshop and meeting, you know, a lot of the people who are really, you know, America's leading beaver authorities, people like Chris Jordan and Kent Woodruff. Uh, yeah, people who are really, really influential and helpful to me. That sounds really inspirational. You actually um, helped me with my advent beaver cow in December. <laughs> That's right. I can't, with, like, including... <laughs> Back to other momentous beaver moments, um, <laughs> including a giant dam photo. So we wanted to ask you, what's your favourite beaver moment been in all your exploration? So that dam is in, that's in Voyagers National Park. And then actually came after I, after I wrote the book, the book came out. Um, and then I got an email from Steve Wendells, who's a, a beaver biologist in Voyagers, which is this, it's this, you know, this huge, very wild, kind of undervisited national park on the, the U.S.-Canadian border. Uh, and Steve hmm. said, you know, listen, you can't really write about beavers and not come to Voyagers. That's like the beaver mecca. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so, I, you know, I went out there and made a pilgrimage and, and uh, you know, wrote an article about it for National Geographic. I mean, Steve was right. It was unbelievable. Like, I almost felt ashamed that I had, that I had written the book first without going to Voyagers. Hmm. I mean, the dams there were you know, 15 feet high and 800 feet long. You know, oh. what's that? 250 meters. Um, I just can't imagine it. 
it's it was incredible yeah you know and and, and i mean like i said before you know beavers just the scale of what they can achieve in the midwest which has you know relatively flat land and like pretty stable hydrology they can just build these epic constructions that you wouldn't really see in in washington so it's just like it gave me a totally different perspective on what these animals are capable of doing um so i, I love going to voyagers and any you know any beaver aficionado listening to this I and mean, that's a place you have to go before you die you have to go to voyagers <laughs> amazing i guess the uh, the landscapes are quite different you know north america to, to europe in some areas but one of the other things we wanted you to help us settle and our, hear our, our listeners to hear is what are the key differences between the american um beaver and europe's cast of fiber can you describe some of those and therefore the question comes up quite often in the context of um, scientific research that's been done in the states, and is that applicable elsewhere? Um, if you've got a different different species, technically, and I imagine that given their habits are very similar, the outcomes are going to be very similar. But what do you see are the the main differences? Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right that they, you know they basically, I mean they you know they have the same essential behaviors. They're you know they're building similar dams. The dams are performing very similar functions on the, on the landscape. So I think that you know that ecologically you know, that any any research conducted on North American beavers is, you know, is at least theoretically applicable, you know, in a, a European or, or Asian context. I mean, you know, they physically, uh, you know, they are, they do look different. I'm not, you know, a great beaver biologist, obviously, but somebody like, like, uh, you know, Derek Gao could look at uh, a, a North American and, and Eurasian beaver and instantly tell them apart. Um, hmm. You know, so there are some morphologic differences, you know, they have different numbers of chromosomes, so they don't interbreed at all where, you know, where, where North American beavers have been introduced, like in Norway. Um, Steal you know, that no... fact for the next series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or maybe there, or maybe there are your. I'm trying to remember. Maybe it's maybe it's in Finland. I know that there there's a, a big North American beaver population in in a Scandinavian country. Oh yes, yes, uh, I've heard of hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, but they don't, but they don't interbreed at all. But you know, I, but I, but I do I do hear that come up a lot. You know, in in sort of conversations with with colleagues in in Europe. You know, saying right, people say that you know that Eurasian beavers don't build dams that are as impressive as the North American ones do. Um, and I just think that, you know, that just comes down to opportunity, you know, that you, yeah. you, it's a much yeah. more, well, and I guess available space, exactly, an available space, right? You're, you're yeah. operating in a much more developed context, I think, mm. in, in, uh, in Europe, and they just don't have the opportunity to build, you know, an 800 foot long dam. Um, but you know, I think <laughs> the river even the opportunity, they, they would, yeah, right. exactly, yeah, exactly, right. It's, just a, it's a different social and physical context, you know, but mm. But um, but historically, you know, I think I think the Eurasian beavers would have been just as uh, impressive architecturally just as, as any, any North Americans. Just as <laughs> Ben, we're at an interesting moment in beaver introduction in Europe, as you're of course aware. In that we're especially in Britain, beavers are coming back. We're getting more and more beavers and more and more rivers, and suddenly the question of how we manage those populations as well as managing a growing human population and housing and road networks. And the UK is just feeling quite squished with all of that going on. What are the most surprising things or maybe some hits and tips that you've learned about beaver management over the years? You know, maybe what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, has this evolved over time or increased in maybe urgency along with the climate crisis? What kind of um, any anecdotes you can offer for our listeners on that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, I think there's this perception 
um, among people who, you know, are not beaver people. Um, you know, these are animals that, that have to live, you know, out in the wilderness or something like that, you know, out in, you know, some national park. But, you know, but there, I mean, there are more beavers living within city limits in Seattle than there are in all of Yellowstone National Park. You know, these are really like very, very urban animals. They do quite well around people if we give them a chance, you know, and, and um, mm. I mean, from a coexistence standpoint, you know, flow devices, I'm sure you've had guests on, on who've talked about, you know, these pipe and fence systems that can basically yeah. be used yeah. to manage water levels. I know that I know that's being used on the river, on the river otter drainage, um, you know, with, with some success. And, you know, and here, I mean, there have been studies showing that those sorts of non-lethal management solutions are, you know, 85 to 95% effective. So there are beavers living in, you know, there are, I mean, working on the book, I went to a, a Walmart, you know, a giant box store in Utah, <laughs> you know, and there were, I mean, there were beavers living in the parking lot. Um, because they, you know, what? they put in, they had put in a wow. flow device, one of these pipe systems that was managing the water level. So you had this beautiful little pocket of wetland created by beavers, you know, adjacent to this enormous sort of, uh, you know, landmark of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was incredible. So that, you know, the, so there've been all kinds of wonderful case studies, you know, that there's, um, very famous, or at least, at least very famous in beaver circles, the, a woman named Heidi Perryman, um, who mm-hmm. lives in, uh, in Martinez, California. And she had, I mean, she basically saved the beavers that moved into downtown Martinez using one of these flow devices. So, you know, I guess to me, all of, all of North America's experience points to the fact that, you know, these are, these are animals that can live with and around people with just a little bit of consideration on our part. You know, we put in one of these, one of these, uh, these flow devices and there's basically nowhere that beavers can't theoretically live. You know, we can have these creatures Mm. everywhere as long as we exercise a little bit of tolerance and forbearance and and, uh, political will. Do you find that there's, um, so you've obviously spent a lot of time between the US and the UK, any differences culturally perhaps in public opinion um, on beavers between these two continents? One of the things that was really, really meaningful for me was coming back to the UK after the book came out in, in 2019, I did I did a you know a little two week uh, book tour. And one of the things that I, I did was I went on a beaver walk with with Chris Jones, who's, you know, who might've, I don't know if Chris has been a, a, oh, lodge, yes. a lodge cast guest already, but he, he certainly should be. He's our colleague. Um, yeah. yeah, of course. I'm not sure if he's been on the lodge. He hasn't. Sorry, Chris. So, so of course we all we all love Chris, of course. Um, and I went on a, a beaver walk uh, in Cornwall with, with Chris, and you know he invited a you know a couple a couple dozen uh, local community members, and it was it was just an incredibly moving experience because you know I think that in North America we you know we really take our wildlife for granted in a lot of ways. You know we have we have beavers, we have bears, we have wolves, we have moose, we have bison. You know we have all of these animals that. Right, don't brag. We're so spoiled, mm. yeah. No, well, but but yeah, you, you know, guys and, and it's, very and it's not anything wonderful that we did. You know, we just sort of have a, a, a larger <laughs> landmass and got lucky and didn't, you know, almost wiped all of these animals out, but didn't quite. And now they've managed to recover. And I think, you know, and I think we take that for granted. You know, and and when you when you go to the UK, I mean, it's you, you know, you unfortunately you don't have those things. You know, I mean that, that we've got hedgehogs. You've got hedgehogs. <laughs> yeah. Not very many, but right. you've got some otters. Yeah, yeah. clinging on the cliff edge. <laughs> <laughs> right, but there's you know, and, and that was and that was a that was a point that uh, you know that that Derek Gow made when I talked to Derek. You know, it was it was just um, that you know when you, you the, right the UK is sort of this nation of of 
animal lovers, but you know, but it's down to hedgehogs and water voles and you know, and, and a few other <laughs> little critters, you know, because you've lost all of the all of the big stuff, and and uh, how sad that is. Um, so anyway, so going out with Chris, you know. We're we're on this on this pond in the evening. He's got you know very obliging beavers at Cornwall that came out and yeah. and and you know and people I mean people people had tears in their eyes you know seeing this incredible mm. you know I mean beavers if if you didn't know that beavers existed they would be these almost mythological creatures right they're these giant rodents with these crazy paddle tails mm. that cut down trees with their teeth and build walls. You know, it was, I mean, it was like seeing the Loch Ness monster or something for people. You know, and I, th and I think that, you know, that right, yeah. that seeing this animal that had been gone from the landscape for four hundred years and is now being returned, I think that, you know, I think that a lot of people in the UK have a great deal of pride in in beavers. You know, and truly love them and value them because you, you know, because you've lost so much wildlife. You don't take your animals for granted the way that we do. You know, and mm. every year the federal government in the U.S. kills twenty thousand beavers. Um, you know, because they build dams and road culverts or whatever. And it's just, you know, we, we don't have any sense of beaver pride. I don't, I don't think we take them for granted. We consider them nuisance animals because, you know, we haven't, um, you know, we don't remember what's like not having them in the way that, mm -hmm. that Brits do, I think. So, I, you know, I think that's, that's something that I, I really admire about uh, your beaver culture is that, uh, you know, you, you just value <laughs> them because you lost them and brought them back. Whereas we've kind of always had them and therefore we take them for granted. That's a really interesting insight, actually. Some of us value them. We're working on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know they're <laughs> I know that I know that not all farmers are as enlightened as Chris's. Tools with Chris. It's nothing better. Um, your book I'd like to dig into a little bit. I, I listened to it on Audible. I think you read it, didn't you? Oh, good. Um No, I I, I didn't. They, they hired okay. a, they hired a real reader, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> It's um, it blew my mind. I I read it a little while ago now, but some of the things that stuck for me were, uh, and I wondered that if you could elaborate on a little bit. One of them was the evolution of beavers, and just mm. the and this speaks to your point about the Brits having missed them for hundred years and think they're the Loch Ness monster. But I find it amazing <laughs> that they've been around for so long in in some format, and the fact that they were busy crossing the land bridge um, to establish that caster species like 10 million years ago. Right. I just think that's so cool. And um, wondered if you wanted to give a quick natural history lesson um, on our favourite yeah. rodents, <laughs> like a condensed sure, version yeah. for our listeners, because I think that's <laughs> really something to note how far back this goes. Yeah, you know, beavers were, were historically very diverse. There have been something like thirty genera uh, of beavers over the over the the, the millennia. Um, you know, there in North America, you know, there were little sort of prairie dog like beavers that dug these kind of crazy helix shaped burrows. Uh, you know, there were these enormous beavers, you know, nearly as large as bears. There have been all of these different forms uh, over the you know over over many many millions of years. But you know, as you as you say, you know, as far as we can tell, sort of Castor fiber and Castor canadensis, you know, are North American Eurasian beavers. I mean, that lineage goes back 10 million years or so. And you know, beavers originally evolved in North America. It seems like they crossed the land bridge into into Europe and Asia, and then essentially recrossed in in more or less their modern form, and then and then diverged maybe eight to ten million years ago. Um, so you know, what, the, what that means is that there. I mean, these are animals that have been building dams on the landscape for up to ten million years, and and possibly quite a bit longer. You know, there is some some suggestion that, you know, the, the dam building behavior may even precede castor canadensis and castor fiber. And, and there might be, you know, a common ancestor as far back as, as 
20 million years that that was a, a dam builder. Um, but, you know, at minimum, we know that there have been dam building beavers for 8 million years or so. Um, so, of course, that what, what that tells you is that, is that our two landscapes, Europe and North America, have been sort of co-evolving in the in the presence of beavers for many, many millions mm. of years. Um, you know, that our, our, uh, our species are intimately adapted to beavers. You know, there mm. are... There are there are butterflies in in North America that pretty much only their caterpillars only feed on the sedges that grow in beaver ponds. You know, uh, you sort of <laughs> ask, okay, why do coho salmon, you know, one of our salmon species, their juveniles, their fry, do incredibly well in beaver ponds because they evolved to to rear in mm. in the landscapes that beavers created. So I think that's a you know to me that's always a, an important thing to remember is just how ancient you know, this dam building behavior is so, you know, so in the UK, they've been, you know, they were gone for what, 400 years or so, maybe a little bit less. I mean, that's really just a, you know, the geologic blink of an eye, of course, mm. um, you know, they've, they've been mm. present for millions of years and gone for only a couple of centuries. Um, clearly they, you know, they deserve or belong there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the other really fascinating thing. And this is a whirlwind tour of your book by comparison, but the, um, the trade, and and the importance of beaver trade for the impact on trade relations, history, culture, um, the rivers and habitats themselves and the landscape you've just said a little bit about, but how central to cultural shaping were beavers themselves? Because it feels to me, having listened to, I think it's chapter three or four of your book, is they seem really central to how things developed. And I wonder if that's often overlooked by people, again, particularly Brits who've forgotten about beavers. But I think it's fascinating that and then on to, you know, the indigenous people's relationships. Um, you described a beautiful phrase of sort of warping from subsistence and kinship to extraction yeah. um, with the advent of the beaver trade. It's, I think it's such an important look at the history of beavers. I'd love you to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a specific question, but like, no. it's a fascinating area. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and Sophie kind of got to this with her fun fact. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, hard to you. imagine how, you know, how, how our two cultures or civilizations, you know, would have developed in the absence of, of this profoundly significant uh, economic resource. I guess to begin with the, with the indigenous relationship with beavers, you know, because that's sort of where it starts chronologically. One important thing to remember is that today we're sort of, you know, Western science is awakening to the idea that, hey, beavers are really important. You know, these are these ecosystem engineers and, and keystone species that we want back on the landscape. But that's, you know, that's something that native people have understood in North America for 10,000 years. And you see that understanding reflected in cultural relationships, you know, so in when the fur trade began in the early 1600s in, in North America, uh, you know, the indigenous people in the eastern United States were, were very willing and enthusiastic participants in the fur trade. You know, they caught beavers and they traded with European, um, you know, English, Dutch, French fur traders. And, you know, par partly that was because they, you know, they wanted the knives and pots and pans and other goods that they were receiving for pelts. But partly mm -hmm. it was because they recognized that, you know, hey, when we remove beavers from an area, you know, and that pond drains, the, the kind of the lush, wet meadow that you get is really good forage for, you know, deer and hmm. moose and, and other animals that we like to hunt um, and that, you know, are important hmm. subsistence resources. So, you know, in, in part, you know, Native people took part in the fur trade as a way of engineering their environment. Then, you know, as the centuries go on and the fur trade kind of moves west across North America, you know, when you cross kind of the Mississippi River in the Midwest, you know, the Western U.S. is much more arid than the Eastern U.S., right? It's very, very dry. And there, you know, beavers are really important 
at sort of storing water and creating these little you know, ecological oases on the landscape. So, you know, as the fur trade moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, suddenly, you know, Western, Western indigenous people, tribes like the Blackfeet in, in Montana, refused to participate in the fur trade because they actually had cultural prohibitions against mm. killing beavers. They sanctified beavers because they knew how important these animals were at creating mm. and storing wow. water. Uh, in the arid, the arid U.S. So I think that's a really important point that you know different, the different native tribes had a different relationships with beavers that reflected their kind of environmental context mm. because they understood, you know, how beavers influenced the landscape. That's fascinating. I just find that totally fascinating, right? So that so this notion that beavers mm. are ecosystem engineers, I mean, that was understood by native people for for many many thousands of years. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're looking to indigenous people to try and link back climate emergency sort of re solve, you problems. Know, solve problems basically <laughs> and here we've got beavers and yeah it's just it all relates yeah. as usual it's fascinating thank you <laughs> ben you clearly admire the beaver a lot <laughs> but are there any other species that really get you as fired up or as excited um and maybe might we see books in the future that focus on another species what can you tell us <laughs> um you know I, I love i love all creatures sophie no I, you know i really i really love i love fish you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a i love to go fishing i love salmonids you know trout and salmon and you know i think that was a big part of what got me into beavers honestly was that that salmon connection you know i, I know it's, it's funny mm. i know that um yeah, that's, you know, you, we were talking earlier about sort of differences between North American and, and British sort of beaver cultures, you know, and I think that's, that's one important one is that here, you know, maybe 50 years ago, there were salmon people who hated beavers. Um, but at this point in North America, I think that the, the fish community is pretty well united in its appreciation for beavers. Um, you know, now you see, really? you know, oh yeah, you definitely see, you know, I think that honestly, the connection between beavers and salmon is the reason that beavers have become so hot in the Pacific Northwest, you know, in Washington and Oregon, you know, most of the interest in beavers really stems from an interest in salmon and, you know, the, the, the hmm. awareness that beavers create really good salmon habitat, you know, salmon are probably, I mean, they're, they're certainly the most economically important uh, animal in the Northwest. You know, there's so much money that's being thrown at their recovery. Uh, and a lot of that has flowed to beaver projects, which is great. Lessons to be learned there for the yeah. beaver, uh, Salmon are the celebrity fish over here as well. Right. But I mean, to me, as a, as a kind of an outside observer, it seems like there's a lot of beaver opposition um, from the, the angling and fish biology communities uh, in, in the UK to some extent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that might be one way in which, you know, we're, we're a little bit ahead of, uh, of the UK possibly. It's mm. just... That is cool. Yeah. It's an interesting one, beavers and fish, but I think we need to look abroad to learn. Um, you are an environmental journalist who, whose expertise goes far beyond that of beavers. Um, and what we wanted to see is whether you could bring any stories that have come across your path um, that bring hope. So hope thrown into the mix as well for the environment, because green news can be quite a gloomy place. Um, is there anything you might have been writing about recently um, that excites you or that you are excited to dig into in the future? Yeah, well, so, well, so, so Sophie asked about the next book. So the, the book that I'm working on now, which will be out, uh, I don't know, sometime in the 21st century, I hope, um, is, a, is about... Uh, <laughs> 
It's about the, the science of, of road ecology, basically how roads and nature interact. So another very kind of beavery, beavery topic of a lot of roads and road and beaver interaction. But that's not really what this one's about. This, this book is, you know, it's really about, I'm sure you've all seen pictures of wildlife crossing structures, right? These beautiful green bridges uh, mm, yeah. that go over, over highways or, or tunnels going underneath them. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that inspires a lot of hope in, in me, I think, is that our infrastructure has just been so destructive to, to nature. You know, I think mm. that, that uh, roads are kind of the one of the great unsung ecological catastrophes, um, you know, of the, the 20th century mm. and beyond. You know, we just take it, whether whether it's, you know, a, the smashing of a hedgehog or a badger in the UK or, or uh, you know, a raccoon <laughs> or an opossum or a white-tailed deer here, you know, I think that we just kind of take that for, for granted as a, you know, as an environmental impact, but it is a huge impact. You know, there are many, many endangered species in North America, you know, where car collisions are kind of the primary source of mortality and, you know, the thing that's mm. wiping them out, you know, but I think that fortunately there is increased funding and political will and interest in doing something about it. You know, I think for a long time, we just sort of said, well, you know, roads are, you know, they're just kind of inevitable parts of the landscape. You know, we, we need them. We have to have them. We need more of them. Uh, this, we can't do anything about them and, and you know, too bad, you know, and now I, I think that late, you know, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot more interest in, in dealing with that problem through progressive infrastructural design elements like, like wildlife crossing. So that's, that's mm. what the next book's about is about, um, in, you know, what is, what is really a kind of tragic issue of, of, uh, of road ecology. Mm. Oh, well, we can't wait to read that. That sounds fascinating. And I think probably a massively overlooked element of the world today and how that interacts with nature will one question i have is will this book have a title as good as eager because <laughs> it's such a good title and um fun fact we often called eva an eager beaver in the lodge cast and in beaver trust <laughs> Thanks, Eva. I hope for, the title will match that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I actually I can't take any credit for the title. The title was was all uh, all my my editors doing. So uh, yeah, hopefully I have I have an editor as visionary this time around. Ben, it's been so good talking to you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Eva. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks for your fun your fun facts. You're very welcome. Thanks for picking mine. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you 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 can you can Venmo me a few a few pounds later. Um, but, <laughs> and thanks so much to all, all that uh, the Beaver Trust is doing to uh, to promote our favorite rodent. I'm I'm really uh, just so so impressed by all, all you guys have accomplished and continue to accomplish. That oh, means thanks, a lot. Ben. Thank you. Yeah. Wow, what a brilliant beavery brain box to speak to for our first episode of the new series. That was amazing. I know, my head is slightly spinning. It was just so exciting and just his passion is so infectious and just, yeah. Enthusiasm for nature. It starts totally. right there. It's so cool. I loved his um, quote, these, these, he described beavers as creatures that can live anywhere if you have the tolerance, forbearance and political will. Yes, yeah, so well it. said. So That's well said. Engrave that in every supermarket yeah. or train station. And if you that. want to deep dive into the history of beavers, you've got to listen to his book. It's fascinating. Mm. Or buy it for a late yeah. night read. It's awesome. So good. Yeah. Or a daytime read. Well. <laughs> Oh, now regular listeners to the Lodgecast will be very delighted to hear that the quiz segment of the episode is also making a return for series three. I'm very pleased to hear it. It's my favourite part of the podcast. Um, and the quiz is not 
the only thing making a return, our producer oh. Emma, who made an appearance in some of our previous episodes, is going to join us for all the quizzes this series. Welcome, Emma. Hello. Thanks for having me back. We're delighted. Oh, hi. You're out your box. <laughs> you've, you've let me out again. No, it's absolutely a treat. I just thought, I thought, you know, now that it's like a three-way quiz, it kind of adds extra competition. We're, we're leveling up for series three. Mm. And who doesn't need more competition in their lives? (laughs) (laughs) More competitive nonsense. But I've I've written the quiz this time, so I'm I'm going to set the bar for uh, hopefully what is to be an exciting series of quizzes. (laughs) (laughs) Can we just remind the listeners of the um, the genre of the quiz of the previous episode, the Christmas bonus with Yolo Williams? How did that go? I think that was probably the highlight of series two. Um, that 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 descended into some some odd depths, isn't it? That was I was um, the Christmas animal related quiz, mm. but the first question really lowered the tone when we talked about the shape of turkey poo. Mm. I think if you go back and listen, you can probably hear that we're all slightly at the end of our tethers. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little subtext. <laughs> so new year, new quiz, moving on. Yeah, <laughs> Emma, indeed. what have you got in store for us today? No poo this time. This quiz actually came inspired by a game that I played with my family that I found in a charity shop over Christmas. And I thought, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rehash this. Dust it off, <laughs> give, give it a new name and I like that as a way to Yeah. <laughs> Top tip. That's great. <laughs> so it was a game called uh, Truth or Myth. Uh, it's basically a fact or oh. fiction. Is this a real nature fact or is this something that's either made up Ooh, or is common I like in the folklore? sound of this. Or yeah. perhaps to let myself down really madly. <laughs> <laughs> so both of you just have to decide whether it's, it's true or false. So true Hit or me. false... A blind chameleon will still change colour when its environment changes. Ooh, true. I'm going to go true. It is, yeah. So, so chameleons don't look at their environment. They change more in terms of things like how they're feeling or what the temperature mm. is to whether they can cool down or warm up or stuff or whether they're what like, the vibe hey, is. that's a sexy lady <laughs> yeah. over there. I'm going to change colour. <laughs> chameleon vibes. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> oh, dear. Male mice sing to attract female mice. True. False. Oh, it's true. So Sophie's ahead. Wow. They um they produce ultrasonic vocalizations, yes. which are similar to singing and laughing, and they have found that they can change these vocalizations and that males will uh, do that when they see a, a so nice a nice That's lady. So cool. Or when they smell a nice lady, interestingly. Oh. Start singing. That'd be a bit forward, really, wouldn't it? they like the smell of you start Hello. singing <laughs> that would change the narrative Serenade of all rom-coms wouldn't it <laughs> yeah Hugh Grant just breaks into song every time a woman gets past <laughs> although isn't that every musical ever yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much true. good point okay we're heading to Antarctica for the last one penguins okay, I'll grab my coat <laughs> penguins fall backwards when they look up at planes <laughs> flying over true or false I'd love that to be that true. That is an incredible image. I'm just going to say yes because I wouldn't put it past a penguin to be so, like, that would be so funny, dramatic and performative about that. I'm going to say false again just to be different. <laughs> okay, it is false actually. Oh, like, um, oh. the rumor the rumor basically started when British pilots were first uh, starting to fly over the islands off South America. Um, but experiments have shown they actually are not that bad on their feet. They've got very bendy mm. necks, haven't they? Uh, penguins. It does course. distress them. Yeah, if you if you're flying too low to a penguin, you can still freak them out and they might panic or abandon the nest. But they don't. Mm. 
do the typical oh. kind of like fling themselves backwards in confusion. Which is <laughs> I just thought that would be really fun. Uh, yeah. Very good. Good, Matt. I really enjoyed the variety. We're going to add that all to the tally. And okay. uh, at the end of the series, we'll see who's got the most No doubt you'll points. score. I will. I've got my notebook here. I'm ready. <laughs> thanks for the quiz. Yeah, thanks. Always a pleasure. And with that, let's call time on this episode of The Lodgecast. Don't forget in this series, we have a special treat for you as we're giving away those few copies of Derek Gow's wonderful book, Bringing Back the Beaver, all about his experience of reintroducing beavers in Britain. And once again, for a chance to win a copy yourself, you can post about how much you love The Lodgecast, tagging at Beaver Trust and using hashtag The Lodgecast on Twitter and Instagram, or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and email us a screen grab of it so that we know it was you and we can come hunt you down and give you a chocolate and a book. So email us at info at beavertrust.org. Yes, we'll announce and get in touch with all you winners at the end of the series in a little over six weeks' time. Yes, and as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we're doing things a little differently this series and bringing you our wonderful run of six episodes every week instead of every month. So watch out for another episode next Tuesday when we'll be chatting rewilding at the Nep Estate with the wonderful Isabella Tree, author of the book Wilding. So make sure you've subscribed to The Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice so that you don't miss that one. And for more from Beaver Trust, don't forget you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Beaver Trust and head over to our website www.beavertrust.org and sign up to our free newsletter. See you next week. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Bristian for Beaver Trust.